0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. So this morning, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 10. And if you found Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, in the honor of the preaching of God's Word, would you please stand with me for that reading this morning? Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And it reads like this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Father, this morning we have worshipped you corporately through our singing and our fellowship together. Our children have led us in the worship of you through singing. Johnny has so beautifully proclaimed your word through song this morning. And now as we open that word and we Listen to your still small voice, let our spiritual ears be wide open. Let us hear what you have to say to us this morning, that we may leave this place changed. Changed for your honor and for your glory. To do that, Father, I ask that you make very little of me and very much of you, that you may be glorified in this place. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, the Word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the introduction to the passage that we're going to talk about the day of the girding of your waste with truth we saw in that introduction as I read there through 10 to 13 Paul has told us that there is a battle raging there is a battle raging all around us and this morning we noticed that he said that we are to stand so today we're going to look at what it means to stand with your belt on as I put on my suit this morning I realized the importance of wearing a belt Apparently, my suit is stretched, and without a belt right now, I'd have my pants down around my ankles. So there's an important need for a belt this morning on my suit. I know some of you, a punk by there, even put suspenders on to make sure his uh, pants stay up. There he comes in. Perfect timing, punk. Perfect timing. But... But we all have that support. So this morning we're going to look at this battle that's raging and, and this standing with our belt on. And you notice in the introduction there in, in verse 12 that Paul tells us that our battle is a battle that is raging that is not a physical battle. For he tells us in, in verse 12 that it's not against flesh and blood but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness. We are daily in a fight to the death with Satan and his demons for the lost in this world. Daily we're to a battle with Satan to the death for the lost. The world we live in is controlled by the devil. The Bible tells us that. It actually tells us there in Ephesians chapter 2 that we studied what I guess has been years ago now, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, it says this, And you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Listen to this. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He is the prince of the power of the air of this earth. He has power in the world that we live in. And it's a mighty power that he has. He is the spirit who works within the minds of those who are disobedient to God, those who do not see God as the creator, the savior of this world. As we said a couple of weeks ago, Satan attacks us through our mind. If you remember, we talked about in the book of Genesis, how the attack, how sin came into the world through the thought process. And he plants these seeds of doubt. These seeds of doubt about who God is. And he plants seeds of doubt about what God desires for us. The Bible also tells us that Satan was created. And he was created by Christ, oddly enough. In Colossians verse or chapter 1, in verse 16, it says this about creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, the visible as well as the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We just read in Ephesians that that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and it says that all principalities were created by God. So Satan is a created being. And as the creator, God himself Christ has the ruling and authority over all creation. Satan was created by Christ for Christ, and Christ still reigns, even though Satan is a powerful being. Jesus tells us ultimately how his authority how his authority will be seen, how it will be revealed, how it will come to to fruition, so to speak has as eternity fastly approaches in John chapter 12, and we won't read it all, but in John chapter 12, starting in the 23rd verse, he says this to us. He says from the, from the 23rd verse all the way to the end, he says in the 23rd verse, this, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So he's talking to his disciples about, about this end of time, this time that, that his, he's going to be glorified. He says that he goes on there in the next few verses to tell them that That there's this death that is coming. There's this death that is coming for him, but this death that is coming for him is gonna bring this life. It's the life that we read about in Ephesians 2 just a minute ago when it says that we were all dead but brought to life through Christ. He goes on to say in the verses that follow 27, all the way to the end, or 23, all the way to the end of the chapter. That there's this life coming. For he says in in verse 27, he he goes on to ask this question. As he's talking to the disciples, he's talking about leaving. He's talking about this death that's coming. He looks at them and says, now my soul is troubled. and, And what shall I say about it? Father, save me or keep me from this hour? He asked this question. It's a question that all the disciples were hoping the answer was yes to that. That God would keep him from this hour. They weren't looking for him to leave. And he says, he says I've, I've got this question. But then he goes on and he makes a purpose statement following the question. And the purpose statement is, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, I don't want God to take it away from me because there was a purpose in me coming. And that purpose is going to be revealed in this hour. So we see Satan as this this prince of the the air, but we see Jesus approaching this cross. And he says, as I approach this cross, there's a purpose that's going to be revealed to you. There's this purpose that's coming. Jesus has got his mind set solely upon the cross, upon that purpose that's coming. He's reflecting on why it is that he's about to endure the suffering upon this cross. And in verse 31 of that 12th chapter of John, he makes this statement. Now. Is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see what Jesus says. The prince of the power of the air may be Satan. But never forget, there's a cross. There's a cross that Jesus said, I'm going to crawl upon. And judgment's going to come to the world as well as salvation to the world. And the prince of the power of the air (laughs) is going to be cast out. Jesus knows that the cross represents God's judgment on sin. That's why in the garden, he said, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he realized for the first time in his life, he was going to know what it was to have judgment upon him for our sin. And he knew that cup was full. He knew that cup was heavy. Yet he picked that cup up. He drank it all and he turned it over on the table and said, bring it on. And at the end of the cross, what did he say? Just look at the cup. It's empty. And this job is finished. And he knew that there was going to be this time that that cross was going to be in his future. And he knows that at the cross, he's going to defeat sin and he's going to defeat Satan. Jesus also knew that the manifestation of the defeat of Satan wouldn't happen. At the cross, it would happen sometime in the future. Because he goes on to tell us in, in John 14, if you flip over to John 12 with me, flip over to 14 and it says this And in, in that uh, 28th verse of John 14. He says, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and, and coming back to you. If you love me, you'd rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus says, I'm about to leave and the heat's going to be turned up on you guys. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm getting ready to just leave you here. But he tells them he's coming again. Church, he's made that same promise to us. He says, I have left, but I'm coming back. He has done this on several occasions with the disciples in several different ways. And in verse 30, he tells them that he is leaving and that the ruler, the prince of the power of this world is coming in full force. Full force. We see that today, don't we? We see Satan in his full force in this world. I believe it's because he knows yeah, that the trumpet player's licking his lips. He's getting ready to blow the horn. The clouds are getting ready to part. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to say, Satan, you're done. <laughs> the, the day is fast approaching. As that day fast approaches, Satan ramps up his attack on us. <laughs> and Jesus says, He's talking to these disciples as he's saying that he returns. He reminds them that Satan, he says, has nothing in him. And I believe he's saying he has nothing on him. Satan's powerful. Don't get me wrong. Satan is powerful. But does not even fit to tie the tie of sandals on the feet of my Savior. For he has nothing on my Jesus. And Jesus says he has nothing on me. You're going to endure for a while. But hope is coming. Hope is coming. And Jesus has told them that his power will be in them. Why? Because in verse 26 of that same chapter I just read, he said there's going to be this comforter, this Holy Spirit that is going to come. And the Holy Spirit's going to be your helper, your keeper. In John 16, he goes on in verse 8 of John 16 to tell them this. And he says that and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Thank God that, that Jesus, whatever he said, I'm leaving. I'm going to send one that's going to be with you as I leave. And there's going to be a purpose that this one that is coming has. Jesus says there's going to be a purpose. And in verse 8, he told us it's to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why? He says in verse 9, sin, because sin is not believing in him, and he's going to convict us of sin. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin? You see, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. For there's not a man alive that one day wakes up without God's intervention in his life and says, you know what, I think today's the day. I'm going to take Jesus as my Lord and Savior. No, what happens in your heart is the Holy Spirit works on you to realize that thing in your life that is not godly is a sin against God. And He works in your life to make you understand there's only one way that you can have that fixed in your life, and that's the man, God man, Jesus Christ. So aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin? But it also says in verse 10 that He comes, it says that He comes to convict you of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus has shown himself righteous, and he's been received by the Father. After he has died on a cross for our sins and was buried, he rose from the grave as proof positive that what he had done was sufficient to pay for your sin and my sin on a cross, and he was taken back into the presence of his Father, giving us the hope one day that we will stand in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in the presence of, of our almighty God. But he also said there in verse 11. In verse 11 he also said that he fix of judgment. That he has this judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world has been judged. Aren't you glad that God doesn't allow Satan to run this world forever any way he desires? For God has judged him through the blood that dripped from the hands, the feet, and the brow and the side of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He has already been judged. So then how are we to stand in the battle if Satan is the ruler of the world and we have to face him in battle every day? That was the introduction. We'll try and get the message in the next 15 minutes. Paul uses the symbol. He uses the symbol of us of a warrior. Paul, I'm sure, was very familiar with warriors, if you remember. I think he had been chained to a couple in the course of his lifetime. I'm sure he had bumped into a couple along his way. As a matter of fact, in most of the journey that Paul had been on, he had seen the regiments of of warriors. And Paul uses a symbol of this warrior going into battle, this this physical uh, realm of the soldier to show us how to prepare ourselves in the spiritual battle that we're facing. He uses this picture, a picture that each of us should be able to see for the soldier in the Roman era had a very specific job and he wore a very specific uniform for the job and that's what Paul's about to do there in Ephesians. He's about to walk us through this uniform of the soldier saying that each piece of the soldier's armor had a specific purpose and so does each piece of our spiritual armor have a specific purpose and he starts there in that 14th verse of Ephesians uh, chapter 6 when he says, Having girded your waist with truth. And there are three reasons that we are to put on this belt of truth. And they parallel what the soldiers' use of his armor were. The very first reason that we're to put on this belt of truth is in preparation. In Paul's day, the men who walked around wore these things that looked much like dresses. Much like dresses. They were tunics, so to speak. They had a head hole, they had arm holes, and they were open at the bottom. And they wore these things that went all the way down uh, to their feet. Even the soldiers wore these tunics. And you can imagine how it cut down just a touch on your mobility to have this tunic wrapped around your feet. You know, I never see, whenever they have the Olympics, I never see the women's race with long dresses and high heel shoes on, do you? Matter of fact, I never see the men wearing tunics. Matter of fact, they put on as little as possible so that there's no resistance. Every seems like every Sunday morning when I come to church, there's a group of people riding down the side of the road out here on 421 that are pedaling for their life from something. I roll down the window and say, there's nobody back there, slow down, as they're going by. But if you'll notice what they wear, they don't wear baggy things. They wear these skin-tight clothes. I thought it was so they were showing off their physique. I actually asked one at the store not too long ago up here at the corner. Why do you wear those funny-looking pants? He says, to cut down on the wind resistance. You know, I've never read a road a bike fast enough that wind resistance ever became a problem with me. (laughs) But apparently, they have a uniform that makes what they're doing easier. Well, so did the soldiers. See, God gives us an example of preparedness of our hearts, just like where the soldier prepares himself by taking and putting on this belt— taking his tunic up and tucking it into his belt so that it doesn't hang around his feet so that he's mobile, able to move without being tripped up. I think about it, I love to watch those live police shows on TV. Now think about it, what if the cops wore those? If I was a robber trying to get away from them, instead of running, I'd let him get close enough to grab a tunic and pull it over his head and just take off running. Because what would he do? But the soldiers, they knew that anything loose would be a problem. So they tucked that into their belt. And, and God gives us an example of that all the way back, as a matter of fact, into the book of Exodus. Do you remember the story of Exodus 12? Remember the story of Exodus 12? You remember what Exodus is about? They're getting ready to exit something <laughs> somewhere. And in Exodus 12, if you remember, he's put in place something called the Passover. Do you remember? He said that tonight there's going to be this death angel that's going to pass through town and you must have on your doorpost and your lentil the blood of the sacrifice. And the death angel will pass over. But you know there was more to it than just that. For he said in, the, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, he says, And thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Isn't it kind of strange that to have dinner, you're going to get dressed up? How many of you, whenever you decide to sit down to dinner, you say, Kids, make sure you've got your shoes on. Get your backpack on your back. Make sure your teeth are brushed and everything's ready to go because we're going to have dinner. No, normally dinner means we're in the house for the evening. Yet at the Passover meal, he says, you need to put your belt on your waist, showing the girding up of their waist. You better put your sandals on your feet. You better have your staff in your hand. What was God telling them? They needed to be prepared. They needed to be prepared, yes, for the meal, but they better be prepared to leave. They better be prepared to leave because he goes on in verse 11 the second part of it and he says you shall eat it in haste he says you shall eat it not looking at the meal but looking at God at the exit that he's prepared for you for they had been in bondage and God was promising them this is your exodus and they were to be prepared to eat and to exit at a moment's notice because he was going to send that death angel through it was a sign that they were Ready to leave the minute that God said it's time. See Jesus gives that exact same picture in Luke chapter twelve in the New Testament. In Luke chapter twelve in the New Testament, down in the thirty-fifth verse, he he says this, again, looking at his exiting, his life here on this earth being done, he says this in verse thirty-five, he says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. See, Jesus is saying, Jesus tells us to have our waist girded, And our lamps burning because we're waiting, we're watching, we're looking for his return. It reminds me when he talks about the lamps of the ten virgins. I think it's in Matthew 25. Remember, five were ready, five were not. When the bridegroom showed up, it was too late. It was too late to go and get oil. It was too late. And they were not welcomed into the feast, to the wedding party. See, Peter even takes it a step further. In First Peter. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter takes it from that physical picture we've seen in Exodus that has a spiritual ramification, takes it from Jesus' physical story that had a spiritual ramification to 1 Peter 1:13. 1, he puts it just as plainly as can be for us for spiritual reasons. He says this: Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, <laughs> be sober. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter takes what was mentioned in Exodus about being ready to exit the country. takes what Jesus said in a parable about the bridegroom coming, the master coming, you being ready. And Peter takes it and says it applies to us spiritually that we are to gird up the loins of our mind. The symbolic physical girding of our waist in preparation for the coming of the bridegroom is carried out spiritually in us by the girding, of the loins of our minds. We're to do it in preparation for the battle that rages. We should gird up the loins of our mind. So not only do we gird up those loins for preparation, but the second reason we gird up our loins is in observation. Remember, he's using the story, the picture of a soldier, a Roman soldier. A soldier is taught that there's two things that you must observe when you go into war. The very first thing you must observe is your enemy so that you know their plan of attack. That's obvious. Anytime you're going into battle, you better know who your enemy is and what they're about to do. But there's a second thing that a soldier is told to observe. They are to observe their commander and what they have trained them to do. For knowing your enemy without knowing what your commander would have you to do to defend yourself against that enemy, is a story for loss for you. For a soldier needs to not only know who he's fighting, he needs to know what it is that that commander would have him do. We are to be observant of what is going on in this world around us. We're to take note of what the enemy is doing (laughs) and his plan of attack. You know, it's not real hard to do. I laugh because I was going to make a couple of notes of things. I finally just stopped because we could have talked all day about what Satan is doing. And there's plenty that's happening. I mean, let's look at it. He he legitimizes gay marriage. He makes us look like the bad guy because we say, even though for thousands of years it's been one man and one woman, you've been wrong the whole time. Satan comes in and plants the seed for the legitimizing of gay marriage. He even plants the seed for the legitimizing of murder. It's called the abortion industry. He makes it so that now they say it's not even a child until it breathes. And as a matter of fact, they've stretched it past that point now. For the child can physically be born and still be killed. See, he attacks our morals and those who are morally upright in our country and in our world. Look at the attacks that's come upon Vice President Pence for doing the thing which I would think any wife would want, saying, I choose not to have dinner alone with another woman that's not my wife. I choose not to be in a car with a woman who is not my wife. I choose not to be in private with a woman who is not my wife because he respects his wife. Yet he was attacked for taking a stance that I think any wife would appreciate. And then look at what's happening to the Christians throughout all the world that are facing death even this morning as we sit in this place, there are Christians that are being beheaded, that have been locked up, taken away from their families, that are being—they're on the field doing things that are good for the country, such as bringing water or ministering, but because they do it in the name of Christ, they're being murdered. But look what happens when a storm rages, when it blows through. Who's the first to get the call? You see, Satan is trying to attack in every way he can. But we're to look at what is happening in this world around us, not through the lens of the world, but through the lens of the Bible. We're to look at this world based on what God says about this world. And that's not just observing our enemy and his attack, but that's observing what our commander would have us do in not only defense, but offense. Our commander is the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. If you are a Christian, you have a Lord of your life, and he has a name. And his name is Jesus the Christ. One day, every knee will bow, and every tongue is going to confess, not making him Lord and King, but that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Today, if you're a Christian, he should be the Lord of your life, your commander, It's not your wife, it's not your neighbor, it's not your pastor, it's Jesus Christ. He is the commander in our life. And he says he will return one day to wage war on this world. He's going to return one day to wage war against Satan, who is our enemy. He'll return bringing with him, he said, the armies of heaven. And guess who they are? Those of you who know Jesus as your commander. Your Lord and your Savior. I love how it says in Revelation. 19. I was going to skip this due to time but I don't have time so we're going to read it anyway. It says in Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on, on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In verse 12 he says his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in the heaven clothed in fine lemon white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the almighty god i love that passage because he tells us in verse 11 that he's going to show up on a white horse speaking of war speaking of armies do you know what the white horse represents victory when the king came back into the city after they'd been off at war, if they looked down the road and they saw him on a white horse, you knew what they knew? We had just won. Here he comes on a white horse. He shows up in victory. It says in the second part of, of verse 11, it says that he is faithful and true. Remember when it said earlier what I read, that there's this righteousness about Jesus. When he returns from the Father on the white horse, he's going to come and he's going to judge, and he's going to do it righteously. It's going to be done by God's standard. In verse 12, he says this, and he has these eyes like flame. There's not going to be a thing that's going on in this world then or that goes on now that Jesus doesn't see. Those eyes are going to penetrate and see the reason behind the things that are done. See the heart of the matter. So he comes with these these eyes of flame and upon his head, it tells us in verse 12, are many crowns. It's easy to know what the many crowns are there for because that's why people are going to follow their knees and say, you're the king of kings. Because on his head are going to be those many crowns. It tells us in verse 13 that when you look at him on that white horse robed with the burning eyes and those crowns upon his head, when you look at his robe, you're going to notice a name, but you're also going to notice that it's spattered in blood. And it's not because of the battle at Armageddon, for it has yet to happen. Why is he splattered in blood? Because Jesus right now is fighting our battle with sin. Right now in this world, Jesus is being splattered with the blood of our sin when he's fighting in battle. But then it goes on in the 13th verse and it says that his name will be called the Word of God. The true and living word of God. The word that spoke creation and existence. The word that raised the dead to life. The word that calmed the stormy seas. The word that delivered us from our sin. The word that is going to return. Return just as he said. And then in verse 14 he said he's going to bring with him the armies. I can't wait to the day that Jesus says, Get on your horse, son. We're headed to battle. I can't wait to the day that I know the battle no longer will be me having to be involved. I'll be following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is the victor. I will get to follow him in the battle. And it says, out of his mouth is going to come this two-edged sword, the truth of God's word. And it says that with that two-edged sword in verse 15, that he's going to strike the nations. He'll win the war with the Word. He tells us that we should gird up our loins. You know, if the Word of God is so important that He spoke things into existence with that Word and He's going to come back one day and use that Word to destroy the sin of this world, don't you think it's important enough for us to gird ourselves with it, to gird the loins of our heart? Yet few Christians do that. Few Christians take God's Word seriously. We don't read His Word. We don't memorize His Word. We don't use His Word to make decisions in our life. And then when we do use His Word, we want to argue with Him. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be no argument. When the Word is revealed, it's going to be revealed for the truth that it is. And we're to prepare for the battle by girding our loins with the Word. I'm reminded of John 1.1 when it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and that Word was God. We're to gird ourselves with Jesus Christ. And why do we gird up the loins of our mind with the truth of God's word? Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and mirror. And it is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Why do we want to gird ourselves with the word of God in preparation for the battle? And an observation of what's going on. Very quickly, the third reason we're going to gird ourselves with the truth of the word, the belt of truth, is in Revelation. You see, the soldier on the battlefield reveals the plan that is put in place by the commander. He reveals that which he has been trained, what he's been prepared to do. He reveals those things that he's practiced over and over and over again. He can be awakened in the middle of the night and told to go do something and there needs to be no instruction done because he's learned that. He's taken it into his heart and he can do it in a moment's notice. That's what makes a good warrior in battle. When we, as Christians, have properly prepared our minds with the truth of God's word, we will be able to successfully reveal what God's word says to a lost and dying world. You see, it's impossible to reveal something that you do not know, and it's impossible to know something that you've not exposed yourself to. In Ephesians six fourteen, Paul tells us that we are to gird our waist with the truth. And what is the truth? What's well, the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's not new revelation. It's not coming up with something that's never been seen. What is the truth? It's what was penned thousands of years ago. In the book that you hold in your hand. At the inspiration, the authorship of the Holy Spirit. Written by the hand of men selected by God to do that. It's the Word of God that speaks to our hearts. The Bible is a living and breathing Word of God. If any part of the Bible you hold in your hand, you feel like is untrue, then the entire Bible is untrue. You don't get to pick and choose. What God says, God says, and it's true. And we should gird ourselves with that. We must renew our minds that have been distorted with sin, and we need to renew it by the washing of the Word, as Jesus says. We cannot continue to look at the world through the lens of the world. We can't continue to look at what's going on around us, trying to figure out how to solve it with new laws or social programs or new things going on. We need to look at the world and the problems that are happening in the world as God looks at it. So two weeks ago, I believe I told you, John MacArthur made a great statement about what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. When he was asked, what is a Christ-like, God-honoring response to what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia? When two sides of an issue fought each other, some hurt, some killed because of some, something they didn't like. What, what is the biblical Christ-centered response? John MacArthur stood in his fit and said, that's simple. They're acting like sinners. Bottom line. What happened in Charlottesville, Virginia? What we see happening in the marches all over the place. What we see when people are killing people for being Christians, for bombing places, for robbing folks, for doing the things we see going on around us. You know what that is? That's the heart without Jesus. So what's a new law going to do? Nothing. What does the heart need? The Word. It needs Jesus Christ. And what He says is we should gird ourselves with that truth. We must renew our minds that are distorted by sin and we must Look at this world through God's eyes, through the Word. The only way we can be involved in what Jesus is doing is to renew our minds with the Word. Very quickly in closing, Paul says this in Romans 12, 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will. Of God. He says, Don't let your mind be hung up in the things of this world. Let your mind be transformed by the Word so that you can prove what is the good and acceptable. And perfect will of God. The renewing of our mind reveals to the world the perfect will of God. It's not enough to say that we're a Christian. It's not enough to invite people to church. It's not enough to sit on the pew every week and be accounted for. It's not enough to teach Sunday school. It's not enough to lead the choir. It's not enough to preach from a pulpit. It's not enough to read your Bible every day. We must be seeking and searching the will of God for our lives. And let me give you a clue. It's not to sit on a pew for an hour and 40 minutes on Sunday morning. The will is evident for your life. It is to be done by the renewing of your mind through the washing of the word. Just as Paul told us about Christ's love for us in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, he told us about the love for us that Christ had when he talked about the husband and wife. He says, just as Christ, chapter 5, verse 25, second part, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. When we, the church of Christ, are prepared for battle by the observation of Christ and his word and we reveal the word of God to this world, the world sees the will of God. And what is that will of God? Two quick verses. I think about 1 Timothy chapter two. 1 Timothy chapter two, verse three says this: "For this is the good, uh, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth." What is God's desire? That all hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. But notice it doesn't stop there. It says, "and come." To the knowledge of the truth. That leads me to the second thought about what God's will is in our life. And that comes from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Justified is what you are when you're brought from death and sin to life in Christ through salvation. Sanctification is what happens when you wash your, word, your mind with the Word of God. And he says, the will of God is your sanctification. He wants all men to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and to grow in the knowledge. And how do you grow in the knowledge? It's the big church word, sanctification. It starts with the girding of your mind, with the belt of truth. We're to do it in preparation an observation, and ultimately for the revelation of God to a lost and dying world. I ask you a question this morning, church. Can you stand? Can you stand before the one who is the truth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and say, I have girded the loins of my mind with the truth of God's Word? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.